This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Dr. Rosa Balfour. Rosa Balfour is the director of Carnegie Europe. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Rosa. Nice to be with you, Paul. Well, there's so much to cover, but we only have about 25 minutes. So let's try and focus, Rosa, in these next 25 minutes on European foreign security policy and how your assessment of how the, the EU's foreign policy institution, the External Action Services, is operating now. It's into its 12th year. And obviously, because it is so topical, it was published uh, only yesterday, the, the UK's new integrated review, Global Britain in a Competitive Age. So I think those two uh, subjects are enough to keep us occupied for the next 25 minutes. So let, let me start, if I may, by asking you, what, where do you think, we're now into I think, year 12 of the European External Action Service, this great experiment in trying to forge a new foreign security arm of the EU European project. How, how is it going in your view? Well, uh, over the past few weeks, we've seen some sad spectacles, a humiliating trip of the High Representative for Foreign Policy, Josep Borrell, to Moscow, where he was humiliated, really, by Lavrov, um, and quite a bit of backlash from the member states. And this comes after a long period in which the EU really struggles to forge common positions on um, uh, several foreign policy issues that are actually very close to Europe. And think about what's happening in the East Mediterranean, um, what's happening in the relationship with Turkey, um, and of course, Eastern Europe, Libya. These are all areas that are very close to Europe and where there is no sign of uh, much of a strategy. Um, so it's pertinent to ask, you know, why is this? Um, is it because the external action service is not delivering? Is it because of institutional dynamics? Is it because of the member states? And I think there's a bit of everything here. As you said, the external action service has uh, recently had, had a birthday and there have been some you know, reports looking at how it's been doing. And by and large, I would say that member states have not invested sufficiently in uh, beefing it up struggled to have uh, a good uh, esprit de corps and, and, and to uh, provide uh, leadership to how the EU as a whole should deal with international issues. Um, and, and it's uh, basically punching below its weight. It's not entirely, I wouldn't put it down to the uh, leaders of the External Action Service in this um, uh, struggle. As I mentioned, member states have been not investing sufficiently in this diplomatic uh, body. Uh, but it's also to do with how it relates to the Commission. And what we're also seeing is that the Commission is actually trying to centralise quite a bit of the foreign policy work. We've, we're seeing, um, you know, a bid for the Commission to become, you know, a geopolitical commission, to, so to play a foreign policy role. We have seen an increase in the importance of economic tools in foreign relations. And all these developments undermine, if they're not carried out in unison with the diplomatic work of the External Action Service, they kind of undermine the authoritativeness 
of the External Action Service and the role of uh, Josep Borrell. And then finally, we've seen Brexit, uh, we've seen member states increasingly divided among themselves, member states um, not worried about using their own specific national interests as, as um, you know, blackmailing other member states in order to promote their own specific um, national interests. So it's been a real struggle to get common positions on things that are very macroscopic, like the Navalny case, like Belarus. In the end, you know, to get the package of sanctions through, it took a long time. Mm. I think it's significant that in the integrated review that the UK put out yesterday, it says the UK was the first European state to issue sanctions against Belarus. And they made a point of saying, and the EU wasn't, basically. Mm. And these kind of struggles in, in, in delivering um, undermine the EU's authoritativeness on these issues, which are macroscopic and which people look at. There's, you know, there's a public debate on this. Um, so this also undermines, I think, the confidence, the trust in the degree to which the EU can actually play a global role. It seems that almost since the, the creation of the External Action Service all those years ago, that, uh, that its, its, its legitimacy and its, its, its reason for being has been, has been uh, questioned by everybody. And, and this, this power grab, the way you, well, my words, not yours, by the European Commission seemed to be uh, symptomatic of the fact that the, the Commission and other mem- and me- member states feel almost threatened by the, the existence of this External Action Service. Yes, well, the Commission was never happy, really, with the creation of the External Action Service uh, because it took power away from the Commission. Um, At the time, I think the reasoning to have a diplomatic body, which included diplomats with a different experience compared to a Commission official, I think it made a lot of sense. But what was critical was that the External Action Service could work with the Commission. So the relationship between the High Representative and the commissioners dealing with external issues um, is important. But what we also see today is that there's a bit of centralization of dossiers in um, around the president of the commission because of the, I think it's partly due to the context we're living in. We're living in you know, coronavirus, in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic where the commission has been tasked with a lot of responsibility um, and therefore is trying to centralize decision-making very much around the president of the commission. Um, And that goes to the expense of the single DGs dealing with external issues, but also of the external action service. And it's really important that the high representative has very good, even personal relationships with the various commissioners um, involved. There isn't much evidence of, uh, you know, uh, seamless cooperation, although I have to say there's not much evidence either that you know commissioners are not getting on with each other but it seems to be very centralized around uh, the president um, and the other commissioners seem to be a little bit uh, sidelined um, including uh, Josep Borrell. So with this quite lengthy diagnosis you've given about why the external action service is not functioning uh, and why the EU foreign security policy is not reaching its full potential to use a euphemism. Um, but do you see any, any way out? We have had this conversation five, ten years time and still be talking about the commission feeling threatened, about the personality, the high rep not being the right kind of person, about member states, jealousy and internal tensions. Do you see a, a way forward, a way out of this kind of quagmire almost? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the institutional tensions are a bit the surface of the problem. The real problem is that um, 
there still is an extraordinary attachment to national independence when it comes to foreign relations. So EU foreign policy, unlike other policy areas, remains very strongly intergovernmental and it doesn't move forward like the other policy areas. Now, we've seen with the pandemic, the EU has actually tasked the Commission with quite extraordinary powers on health coordination. Now, these days, it's not going very well, so they might well change their minds in the future. Uh, but this is an extraordinary leap forward if you look at the history of European integration. I mean, health, taxation, pensions, education, these are national priorities. On foreign policy, foreign and security policy, they've only agreed to coordinate when it suits them. And, and this coordination has not created m enough of a habit of cooperation. And I think what, what structurally what might happen is that there are two things. Either there is, we've, first of all, there's Brexit. And Brexit gives, in theory, could give an, an impetus to the EU member states coordinating more, more uh, systematically uh, to face common threats, potentially. But if, conversely, it creates a fragmentation uh, process with the UK wanting to work with Berlin and Paris and the US as, as member states, as individual states and not as the EU as a whole, that could create further fragmentation um, in the European Union. But what, what we ought to see in order for foreign policy to move forward is a bit of a leap of faith that actually it makes more sense to work together than not. And at the moment, we're not seeing this. We're seeing countries such as Hungary in particular, which is acting a bit as a Trojan horse for China and Russia these days, because it's betting on, on other systems. It's betting on other types of relationships because it doesn't want to see the European Union move forward in political integration. It sees the EU as a single market. And doesn't want so it's it's pushing back on any further cooperation on foreign policy. Um, we see again because of Brexit. I think the foreign policy preferences of Germany and France are much more naked. They're bare, and we see Germany has a very strong business first policy, which other countries may may not agree with. France has a very strong. French foreign policy. Yeah. Um, and these are, they are continue to be irreconcilable uh, views. Um, and and uh, either there is, either there is an incentive for the member states to work closer together, or this fragmentation will be encouraged. So I think how Brexit will affect European cooperation, and how the US will encourage European cooperation, those will be the two shall we say, more structural issues that can shape foreign policy for the future. I don't ask too many kind of institutional kind of Brussels geeky type questions, but on the issue about uh, that foreign policy still, I think, requires unanimity across the board. Uh, and given that this sounds heretical to say this, but, um, you know, the two thirds of member states have a pretty small population, yet nonetheless, they can they can veto an initiative in any particular given foreign policy area. So you talked about France and Germany just now, but also quite small member states can also uh, get in the way, quote unquote, of, of progress or of a common position. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it's true. And there is a discussion among sort of policy nerds as to whether one should introduce qualified majority voting on foreign policy issues. But to be honest, I don't think it would make much of a difference. Uh, the way I see some of these countries obstructing um, uh, consensus, I mean, there are two reasons. One is 
um, you know, a really um, important national interest at stake. And we saw that uh, Cyprus, Greece, with respect to Belarus, they slowed down the process. But, uh, you know, admittedly, their own sovereignty was under threat by um, uh, Tur- Turkey, Turkish operations in, in the East Mediterranean. So they played that tactic. And this we've seen uh, many times. I think what we're also seeing, and this is newer, is member states obstructing consensus for, um, for ludicrous reasons. Um, for instance, uh, Hungary and Austria blocked for months the approval of the Operation Irini in the Mediterranean. And they have no particular interest there. They don't even have a sea border. And it was really just to make a point about uh, the fact that Hungary in particular, but also Austria is very preoccupied with fears of immigration, but also, as I said, to block, to simply to block, to cause trouble. I mean, if you look at it, countries such as Hungary, because I think Hungary is really a, a large cul- culprit in slowing down consensus in foreign policy. It's not, it's not introducing blockages on areas where retaliation could penalise Hungary. So, for instance, on the package of sanctions towards Russia with respect to Ukraine and Crimea, Hungary has, has, uh, has not um, deviated from that overall agreement, even if it might not particularly like it. But it is doing it on issues of minor importance, simply to stall the process, uh, simply to show that the EU doesn't really function as an international actor, as a, you know, as a decision maker in foreign policy. So I think the other member states should really think hard in, in, in their assessment of how to deal with countries that are deviating from the rule of law, uh, because it does have consequences that spill over beyond the questions of democracy within those countries. It also is blocking um, foreign policy. And this is, I think, a new dynamic uh, that we're seeing on top of the old divisive dynamics that existed anyway, which have made things more complicated in the, in the past few years. I mean, think about the Middle East. Uh, the EU had a common position on a two-state solution, Israel-Palestine, since 1980. Now, it was quite ineffective. You can say it was declaratory. It didn't make much of a difference on the ground, but it was a common position. It doesn't have that anymore because some member states, for reasons of, that are not of national interest, have agreed to transfer their, you know, their, their embassy to Jerusalem to, in, in this case, you know, to do something nice with respect to, to gain some points with the Trump administration. I mean, that's not national interest. That's playing around. Before we move on to the UK, Rosa, let me uh, give you a quote from, uh, from Joseph Burrell, the high representative from a, a blog he published yesterday evening, in fact. And I quote, the world today is becoming more multipolar and less multilateral. The challenge for Europe is to reconcile both dimensions, adapting to the new distribution of power while working to mitigate the political fracturing of the world into competing poles. Now, that sounds obviously very well intentioned, but how realistic is it from your point of view? Yeah, I have to say, Borrell is, is quite prolific in his, uh, in his uh, blog posts. And I, I find that his analysis of the state of the world is is uh, is really quite sound. I think the the problem for him really is translating that into actual action. And and where does the EU stand here? I think my impression of his sense of general sense of direction is that the EU needs to contribute to de-escalate tensions. And I think what's challenging there is the degree to which that is done while respecting the key principles, which I think ultimately boil down to supporting multilateralism. So the question is, how how far can one 
do that and stay faithful to that principle of supporting and promoting multilateralism while engaging in hard-nosed politics. And we saw with, with his trip to Russia that probably he, he was either badly advised or was a bit naive about the degree of hostility uh, that Russia entertains towards uh, the EU, even if Lavrov had been quite explicit about it. I mean, he's been saying it for some time now that, you know, Russia is not pretending anymore that he actually wants to have a relationship with Europe. So so I think it's it's navigating this space between and I, and I do believe that Morel and his team are personally committed to promoting the concept of multilateralism. And I do believe they see the challenges of uh, accommodating that with a, with a multipolar world. But I think sometimes it needs to be a little bit more shrewd in understanding the partners. I actually think that perhaps that is a problem in the sort of political culture of European leaders. Uh, if you look at the way we are engaging with Turkey, Germany insists that we need to have a dialogue with Turkey. And many, I think, agree with this idea that Europeans want to pursue dialogue with partners and find solutions and be practical and be flexible. But the problem is that our interlocutors are not always that committed. They're not, they don't stay true to their word and they're much more flexible about how the international, and, and, and um, I won't even say pragmatic, they're quite utilitarian about how the international system works. And I think probably, you know, as Europeans being used to living in, in a peaceful world for such a long time, we don't, we're not very equipped to deal with these individuals. Right. Okay. So the UK has finally published its integrated review, Global Britain in a Competitive Age. Uh, so question number one, uh, marks out of 10, how do you assess the, the product, the final product? That's a difficult, I think it's well carried out. It's well um, analysed. Um, it has a 360 degree approach to foreign policy. It connects very well with domestic issues, with international issues. So in that sense, it's, it's a well-crafted document and strategy. But of course, there are a lot of points I disagree with in terms of you know, prefer my own preference. The plan is to invest a lot of money, basically, invest resources in, in defence, in cyber, to cut the uh, contribution to international development aid, um, which is actually backtracking from an international commitment that, that Britain has made. So I find these two items problematic. The UK, on the one hand, wants to play, you know, emphasise a, a lot the, the soft power of the UK, based in scientific research, uh, universities, its culture, its sciences. So, so that's, um, that's quite an interesting aspect and really wants to emphasise Britain's global role, its role at the heart of multilateral institutions, etc. But then if you're going to invest a lot of resources on nuclear power, you're actually going against the attempts to work on non-proliferation and disarmament. So I think there's some contradictions there in the sort of picture that Britain is painting of itself. In the relationship with the EU, the, the sort of ideological component of this government comes through quite strongly. You know, I did a word count of uh, how many times the EU is mentioned, and it's mentioned a lot in terms of having departed from the EU <laughs> since leaving the European Union. And then it basically, it, it recognises, it acknowledges that Britain has a stake in European security as a whole, but the way it, it sees its um, relationship with the EU is very much focused on member states, individual member states, right. France, 
first. Again, I mean, there's a sort of history of security and military cooperation between France and Britain that Britain recognises as important. But, and then Germany, of course. But, but to which, interrupt you on that one, Rose, isn't that consistent though with the UK's approach to negotiations for the deal, right, where they refused to have any discussion at all on foreign security policy? So it, it was kind of to be expected, right, they would focus on this bilateral approach rather than institutional approach now going forward? Yes, it, it was to be expected. And I think the unwritten, in between the lines, there is a lack of recognition that the EU can be an international actor and a preference for um, bilateral engagement in ad hoc manners. And, and that's, that's the reality the EU will be moving towards, at least so long as this government um, is in power. Of course, if there were to be a change of government, uh, I think then the grounds would be set for a more institutionalised cooperation between the EU as a whole and, and Britain. Uh, but that's, you know, that's not happening anytime soon. So um, this is the reality in which the EU and the UK and, and the UK might cooperate on foreign policy issues. And, and just a point of clarification, Rosa, you mentioned the, the aid commitment. They do say, don't they, you may say you may be cynical, that when the fiscal situation allows, they will restore the 0.7% aid commitment. So they, they're trying to buttress their kind of their ambitions, their values uh, strategy in that context, no? Um, yes, but I do think that the choice of where to spend taxpayers' money, do you spend it on nuclear defence and cyber or on international aid, it, sign- it, it signifies a certain kind of approach to international politics. And I think, so the, 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 you know, the emphasis on soft power is a bit of morale boosting and saying, you know, global Britain outside the EU is a good thing because we have a lot of assets. But actually, what it's actually doing is investing on its defence, I think, to be uh, an, a, a good partner to the US should there be some kind of escalation of geopolitical tensions. And so, you know, one policy, the soft so the global soft power, which includes international uh, ODA, overseas development assistance, is trying to work through multi, na, multinational institutions, trying to build partnerships. The other is more about power politics. And, you know, they're trying to do both, but clearly they're willing to invest more resources on power politics than on, than on the soft power. Right. We know also, obviously by now the whole leitmotiv of the UK's approach to the European Union was about, was about restoring, regaining sovereignty. Is that very much to see the underpinning of this review document from your point of view? In other words, is the UK now putting forward a strategy which they would argue could not have been done in, in this way had it been still a member of the European Union? Yes. I mean, the, the, again, reading in between the lines or just a little bit of discourse analy- uh, uh, analysis, you know, there's, there are quite a few uh, uses of the term agility, right? Mm-hmm. which is, of course, the opposite of the cumbersome pre- procedures right. of the EU. I also think, and again, I think that's interesting, the relationship with domestic politics. This building, it talks a lot about how the union, i.e. the uh, UK, the United Kingdom, thrives. And the, the investment on space, that would be a space base in Scotland. So some of it is actually speaking to the domestic audiences and trying to give uh, the UK a new branding at a time when the relationship between England, Scotland and Northern Ireland is in perilous uh, conditions. So some of it is actually speaking to a domestic audience and try to uh, rebrand and forge some kind of identity 
for the UK, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's never really existed, the UK as it is now. It was, you know, it lost, the UK lost its empire and joined the European Union more or less at the same time. So this configuration is new and it doesn't really have much of an under of an, an identity. It used to be the dominance of England over the rest. And, and then we've had movements in Scotland, even in Wales now, you know, for independence. And now the union is actually with, the, with Brexit, the union is questioned. Right. A final question, Rosa, uh, the time has gone so quickly. Uh, you mentioned agility just now. Um, we've had a lot of discussion, especially last year before the final agreement was reached between the two parties, EU and UK, about uh, about level playing field, and that obviously normally applies to the regulatory sphere, the economic sphere. Do you see, without it sounding too perverse, a, a kind of uh, a competition between the EU and the UK in the broad area of foreign security policy? Apart from saying we got there first on some sanctions movement, whatever, do you think there'll be some kind of competitive rivalry between the UK and the EU in, in the broad foreign security area? I think so. And it might not be a very healthy form of competition. And that's that would be problematic. So the UK, the first partner of the UK in the review is the United States. And of course, with the new administration, I mean, let's not forget that the Johnson Johnson had actually placed his bets on Trump. So he has a bit of catch up to do, but obviously he'll be able to do that catch up. It's not just because he's quite flirtatious and can be persuasive and overcome Biden's personal resistance towards him. But it's also because the UK is an important partner of of the US. The UK has always been the gateway for the US into Europe. So it's going to manage to have a good relationship there. And, you know, it is it has already started competing with the EU to have to have that good relationship. And of course, we have a year coming up with uh, G7 and COP26 meetings. So it has the opportunity to do that as well. So first of all, one area where they can compete is to get the attention of the US. Now, it'll be absolutely critical how the US deals with this. And it could actually usher in some positive trends as well as negative ones. And so far, Blinken attended the Foreign Affairs Council meeting, you know, they've shown an interest in, in, in working with the EU as such and not just the EU member states. So I think there's scope for being optimistic here. The other areas, so integrated uh, review, proposes an Indo-Pacific tilt. That's the word it's using. And clearly the whole Brexit ideology of global Britain is one which, which pictures Britain at the centre of these global networks in Asia, mostly in Asia, but also uh, mentions also West Africa. And they're going to be investing a lot on that. And this EU member states are slowly waking up to the need to have an Indo-Pacific policy. France, Germany and the Netherlands have one. There's a debate whether the EU should have one as a whole. I see these as areas where competition with the UK might be more likely than cooperation with the UK. And that's where the UK really wants to be agile and be able to have it form its own uh, relationships. It's wishful thinking to assume that trade with Asia can compensate for trade with the EU, but that's Brexit ideology. I mean, uh, you know, facts don't count for very much in in that uh, line of thinking. Right. Well, we have to leave it there. Rosa Balfour, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.